Sometimes the most difficult conversations are the most important ones to have. Four of our best, brightest and bravest clinicians took to the showcase stage to participate in our inaugural You Can't Ask That panel to share their experience as a First Nations clinician in Queensland. The powerful session shared stories of some of their lowest professional moments and challenging experiences in the hope that by listening to each other and creating an open dialogue, we can come together and improve the system. And most importantly, end discrimination. Because together, with a shared understanding and empathy, we can all make a difference. Good morning. Um, I would like to acknowledge the Yuggera and Turrbal people of the land, um, the traditional owners and custodians of the land and waterways that we get to meet on and by today um, and acknowledge and pay my respects to the elders past and present um, and also acknowledge um, any other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are here or online today um, and I acknowledge the hard work that you do for our, for our health system and our mob. As a Torres Strait Islander woman, a clinician and co-chair of the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Clinical Network, it is my honour to host this morning's plenary session. You can't ask that, being a First Nations clinician in Queensland. This, mor this morning's session is a unique opportunity to listen and learn. If something you hear this morning makes you uncomfortable or upset, I encourage you to take a moment and to sit with that discomfort before speaking. Uh, you can submit your questions via the CEQ events app um, or here in the room. If you want to raise your hand, I will try to see, but I've got some helpers, yep. <laughs> but firstly, our deadly panel. On our panel this morning, we have Kirsty Leo. Kirsty is a First Nations and South Sea Islander nurse who has had the privilege of working in the healthcare system for 20 years, specialising in First Nations health. She is currently the Assistant Nursing Director for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health services at Prince Charles Hospital. Kirsty completed a healthcare improvement fellowship at CEQ in 2020, which reinvigorated her thinking, so she now looks forward to sharing and expanding her opportunities to work across the healthcare system to yield improved outcomes for First Nations consumers and clinical communities. Also on our panel, we've got Joe, Joe Tezaram. Joe is a descendant of the Raji people of New South Wales. Whilst Joe was born and raised on country, she didn't know her culture until later in life because of various government policies. Joe has had a diverse professional life with work in and out of healthcare. She was part of the team that set up the first cardiothoracic theatre in Townsville and is currently a clinical nurse consultant in rheumatology at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. Joe is also chair of the PA Hospital's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advocates and Stakeholders Committee. And then we have Gary, Gary Torrens. Gary has roots to Budgelong Country and Southampton in the UK. He has been nursing since 1994. After gaining registration, he has worked primarily in nephrology and kidney transplantation in both Australia and the UK. Indigenous kidney health has become a strong passion in which he wants to find solutions and improve outcomes, which he is currently doing through his role as the clinical nurse consultant from Metro South Hospital and Health Service. Welcome, everyone. I might join you guys over there, eh? Is there another mic? Yeah. Oh. oh, shame. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so... I'll just start with a general question while we wait for the audience to build up their courage. <laughs> um, I guess, when did you guys first realise that you wanted to work in health and what was it about healthcare that appealed to you? Let's start with a warmer. Okay. Um, for me, I was in high school, uh, probably about 15, and at the same time, my uncle, um, Uncle Pat, he was going through a few things and uh, he ended up being one of the first, he was the first Aboriginal man in Queensland to get a heart transplant um, and that was back in the 90s. So that was sort of something I thought, ooh, I'd like to be part of that sort of service delivery of, of providing care and, and help a mob, you know. So that was something really strong that I thought that I'd be able to do and when I put that sort of feeling out with, with my mum and my dad, they were very, very supportive of it and especially the rest of my family as well. Um, back in the day, back in the, in the 90s, a male nurse was probably very, very... Was, wasn't heard of, really. It was, it was very few and far between. Um, so, yeah, I've had a go and I'm still doing it today, so it's something I really, really enjoy. On? Yep. 
Yama, Yama Dumarang, which in my language is, um, are you well? So it's health is actually part of the way that we are. Um, it might surprise some people that I actually never wanted to do nursing. <laughs> um, but it was my ticket out of the country and um, out of home and to the big smoke and to find my own way. Um, I was fortunate enough that I was actually became part of the, I was the last intake through the old uh, hospital system in New South Wales, way back in early 80s. <laughs> Um, so I have a few more years. Um, I grew to, I was hard getting through my nursing, but I, I learnt to love it and it has led me in so many diverse ways throughout research, travelling the world um, and leading me here back to Brisbane, which was where my grandmother, who was part of the stolen generation, did her nursing in the 30s. Um, and so I feel really akin with being here and since coming back to Australia in 2012 is the first time I've actually identified as being an Aboriginal nurse and I think we will explore some of that further on. Jojo, um, for me I started as in 99 as an Aboriginal health worker in Northern Territory um, and uh, absolutely um, overwhelmed and impressed by going to an Aboriginal medical service in Darwin called Danila Dilba. Um, and I thought I had um, broke my arm in a footy game that I was, shouldn't have been playing on the weekend before. And I woke up because I was a little bit um, something the night before, so I didn't really feel it. So the next morning, <laughs> when I went to the clinic, um, I was taken care of by an Aboriginal health worker, senior Aboriginal health worker. I did not see the doctor. She took me in, she done my obs, she said pointed where it was sore, she sent me off and got my x-ray, I came back, she plastered me. And it was the first time coming from East Coast, I was grew up on Durumbul country where Rockhampton now resides, that I actually went to a, what I would call a, a, hosp a, a, a service, a medical service, and actually wasn't seen by a GP. So that has truly inspired me to, come, to become an, an Aboriginal health worker. And then when I came back to the East Coast, um, nursing then became part of my journey as well. So I still remember this old lady. I'm still in contact with her family because I don't think without me being exposed to her in that Aboriginal medical service that I, I wouldn't be sitting here with, in front of you today with 20-odd years' experience. You've touched on something there, the exposure, isn't it? Um, and you, you can't be what you can't see sometimes. Um, I'm going to facilitate and put in a little bit of myself too, if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for from, from my, myself, um, my uh, father was an Aboriginal health worker and, and I think I wrote on my grade seven you know, graduation certificate that I wanted to be an Aboriginal health worker as well. Um, and that obviously progressed to nursing and then into medicine for me. Um, but yeah, and it wasn't until I met another Aboriginal doctor, Uncle Noel, shout out to Uncle Noel, um, that, that I even thought medicine was possible. So, um, yeah, it's really one of those things that... And that's why we need more numbers so that we can just be every day on the wards around. Um, do you think... Um, any questions? Oh, yeah. Congratulations for being number one. I wish I had a prize. <laughs> microphone. <laughs> um, do you feel that we're coming along the journey towards the light at the end of the tunnel of actually having more integration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and knowledge as part of our healthcare journey? Simple, no. Yep. I very, feel very strongly about that. Like you with the work that I'm doing and, and, you, and you work with patients, like with my job, I go all over Queensland, I meet with, with patients who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and you start just talking with them and you yarn with them about all sorts of stuff. You talk about the fishing, talk about the footy, and you, just, you build up that rapport straight away. And then they, and then they just, the, the floodgates open and they tell you of their story and the journey that they've been on. And it's... it's, it's horrible 
Um, I did some work up in Townsville, and one of my consultants, he came with the whole team. And by the end of that, he was, he was very moved. He was not far off crying after hearing stories of the patients who, who don't get access to stuff and the, the equity that, that things aren't, it's not there. And they get, a lot of patients get spoken to and, and talked down to and a lot of things they don't understand and things aren't broken down and it's not, it's about involving your patient and making them part of your journey. They, 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 that's who we serve. So we need to, to, to help them along that journey and really keep things simple and move things forward with them as being the primary focus. So to answer to your question, I think that's a big no and there's ways we have to look at of how we deal and, and deliver care and thinking, thinking outside the box. I think, I guess the bigger, if we take a step back um, from that, probably how I would look at that is how do we actually embrace the 60,000 years of healthcare that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bring to the health system? And I think that's the difficulty. Um, I think we still live in, we still have a very Western model and, and we, we, we want our medical doctors, we want to that, but how do we share space? How do, we create, how do we craft a space where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, knowledges around health care and health knowledges and experiences are equal to um, the medical model in which we all live and exist and, and appreciate? And, and I know I certainly do. I have much respect for, for what I do. Um, but I think that's probably the bigger question you're asking. How do we create a space where those knowledges are actually intertwined um, and there's some synergy around how we deliver health care. And I would agree with Gary, no, we're not there yet. Um, and I think it's about creating a system. And I think, you know, we all have it in pockets and we've, you know, heard a lot around um, the pockets and we'll hear more in the next session. Um, but it's about the systems embracing that in our whole of healthcare system. We've got one Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Division who we know do an amazing job but that's not part of our health system. So I think the equity agenda is really important on how we actually achieve bringing those Aboriginal and Torres Strait knowledges in, but those five KPIs, if we don't get those right, um, and they've set the bar around those five KPIs, and I encourage you all to um, not only read them, understand them, how do you put those into practice into your day-to-day -day as clinicians here in Queensland, we're actually not even going to get to the stage where we can create a, a safe space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge is to be shared safely in a respectful manner. And that's where education also within the universities, within our, um, the education that we give in our hospitals as well. So take, for instance, pressure injury care. How many of your education packages actually have people of different coloured skin? Where is the equity? If we don't see different tones of skin... Um, then how are our younger nurses coming through going to learn? So, you know, so think about these things when you're putting your programs together as well, that we need to be representative of all our people. I work in Metro South Health and we have a diverse culture. And also here in Brisbane, we have one of the largest urban indigenous populations in Australia. Um, so we, we need to be pulling it all together and not just doing our health care and our education through a white lens. So think, reflect about how each time that you go to deliver care, is this right for purpose? Morning, uh, Jen Nankaro, grew up in Kalkadoon country, have family from Sherberg and Gulf. 
I think we need to be having a lot more of these conversations because people are too afraid to ask the questions and the hard questions. My question is, how do we encourage young mob to come into healthcare? Pathways. Um, you know, we, we're, I work in the, one of the largest, and I'll probably be put on blast with this uh, being a Metro North, but we actually don't have a recruitment or retention strategy for First Nations clinicians or non-clinicians. <laughs> Um, and, and sitting in our positions, we can talk and talk about this, but it's actually about creating pathways. When I went for this job as the assistant um, nursing director, which is a manager role at TPCH, what I wanted to do was not just sit there as a representative of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community in an identified role, but how do I succession plan to my my line manager, who's the executive director of TPCH? So I think when we're creating these opportunities, I know for myself, um, Jen, I'll be really honest, I tell people to come into identified roles for a very sm small amount of time because what happens is we create glass ceilings because usually once we get to that identified role, um, we're done. We, we can't go any further. So I think there's lots of opportunities around recruitment and retention strategies. I think embracing those is really important, but not just in identified roles. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we are aiming for a D an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander DG? or an executive director or a chief executive of the health services that you come from, or a CFO of the health services you come from. I think that's the sort of stuff that we need to be aiming for. Because once we, st once we start looking at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander pathways, what I've found over my experience in HHSs, we put a block on them. We look very low level, very rarely are we aiming high. And if we can't see it, we can't be it. Panel, we have a question online from Ashley Clark, who's a mental health clinical nurse. If you had a magic wand, what improvement would you make to Queensland Health? Um, okay, if there was this big machine that made more money, <laughs> that would be, and it just pumped this money out. And it was, there was no, no, no holes barred. It can be used for whatever purpose you want. But then being able to look at how you deliver the care, um, going, doing stuff on country, taking your teams out onto country, um, being able to provide everything which is close to home for patients, seeing the, the, the primary healthcare people working hand-in-hand -hand with tertiary so that this whole cocoon can go around a patient and support them. Um, that's where I would love to see money to go. But that would cost a, a lot of money, so hopefully this machine will come soon. <laughs> oh. yeah, mine, I guess mine's just the equity wand, you know, that we all um, work together. And I think if, we, if you're able to come along on our journey with us for our patients by learning some of our ways that we also care, I think you'll become also better carers um, in providing care to all people. Um, it's, it's not easy to try and um, translate and teach that, but if you, you, know, if you want to come along on those journeys, um, take that time to reflect um, how you may feel. Make sure that you put um, a patient's choices first and as you know Haleen says you know our people first and that's what we need to do but you've got to remember that also that what is say good for my mob is totally different for Kirsty's mob you know we'll we'll have things in different what you know have different beliefs and everything think about um, all our Australia's First Nations people and Torres Strait Islander that we're a bit like Europe. Um, we all speak different languages. We may have some shared histories, but we're actually different people. Um, so you need to have that thought and lens when we're caring as well. I, yep. I, I'm gonna call that word COVID. You know, when COVID happened, and I'm gonna use a few buzz words, we pivoted and we were agile. I was doing my fellowship at the time and Linda McCormack and people probably heard me whinge about that. It was great to see our health system pivot and be agile enough. What really made me sad was that we've got First Nations people living in Queensland 
and we are dying younger, the gap is widening. And we aren't pivoting and being agile enough to address that. Because for me, close the gap has somewhat become rhetoric. We just hear it all the time. We're non-responsive to it. We've become immune to hearing First Nations peoples have some of the worst health statistics in not just Australia, but in the world in comparison to other First Nation um, uh, nation, uh, 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 countries. Um, so I think it's really important. I think that's probably where I get a little bit frustrated around the magic wand. We had a magic wand and we've seen how well our health system could do this. Um, so we know we're capable of it. The frustration is that we've become so used to sitting in First Nations health as some of the worst outcomes that our health system is used to it and we accept it. Um, and I have, a, I have a manager who says, you know, the, the behaviour you walk past is the behaviour you accept. So how do we as a health service and a health system actually not accept that First Nations people have some of the worst health statistics in the world in comparison to our brothers and sisters across the nation? We've got another question online from Jenny Mulkerns from CEQ. She's asking, how can we build in cultural healing as part of good clinical care? Have more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff at all levels um, of the health service. Um, and that's not just putting, you know, when Queensland Health um, a couple of years ago went about, or Metro South Health did, went about going about, oh, let's hire a lot of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and, and put the stats in. But the thing is, though, there wasn't the pathways then created for those people. There wasn't the check-ins. And so most of them left because there wasn't those support to, to give that to support them with um, their health and healing um, within the workforce. And I think that's really important as well. And so if we have more um, co-workers and that we can also mentor and receive mentoring from, then that will make us stronger and healthier for all our people as well. Having cultural governance equaled by clinical governance. If we're going to create healing within a system and we have all of these standard one with our clinical governance, having something like that cultural governance sit in within our standard one of practice. Um, that's probably the only way that a health system will turn and pivot to accept cultural healing in a very um, Western model of care because there really is no room for it in the current state. She's got all the words. <laughs> one thing too that, that we all have uh, that a lot of people don't have is that sort of everyone goes to university, does a degree, but we're not the experts in culture, but we have culture which is natural inside us. And that's something that we, we're happy to share among our own and also to share with everyone else, things of how you can, how you can uh, manage patients, talk to patients, and get the most out of, out of situations. So I think culture and the sharing of our cultures with everyone is, is a very important thing. And one way of doing that is hopefully in, in the workforce, and it's starting from the bottom as well, but building it up, is having uh, the appreciation and the acknowledgement of health workers, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers and practitioners, which you see that work in primary healthcare networks. Um, they are, they are the, the, the breadwinners of, a, of those departments. They do all the hard work. They're the, what, the people that are at the coalface when they meet with patients. Um, and you'll find that a lot of patients will tell something to a health worker, but they won't share that with another clinician because of that, that connection and rapport. Just, I just want to pivot the conversation. Um, and just so our, our topic today is living and working as First Nations clinicians. And I think we need to be very careful about it, not expecting the people in the stage to have all the answers for what is the health system problems. Um, and I guess we're actually here today to just um, to listen to how what your experience has been and perhaps from listening to their experiences we can then reflect on what our health system could do a bit better. Is that all right if we just move a little bit towards that rather than thinking about how we could solve the world's problems? <laughs> um, so... If anyone has any questions along that line, if not, I have my yeah, own. I've got a question exactly on that. And I was just going to say at the start, I want to acknowledge this is personal for you. We're all coming to a professional conference and you're talking about your lives and your culture. No one else is. So I really appreciate that. And shout out to Gary, I'm a male nurse from the 90s as well. So good job. 
Um, I've worked in Aboriginal health for over 10 years um, uh, with Yulanu people in Arnhem Land, Binning people in Kakadu um, as a public specialist and a remote area nurse. I was a senior advisor in youth, Aboriginal mental health and spiritual wellbeing in, uh, with Wurundjeri people in Melbourne. I've got a question. I've seen so many health workers, budding health workers, nurses, doctors, potential managers that have wanted to take the next step. Um, and this isn't just a question for you, but I want to have your sort of what you feel on the question of safety because I know that's a massive thing. I've seen it across the years help build, you know, Aboriginal uh, workforce in Eastern Health in Victoria where you had an Aboriginal liaison officer every three months quit because they were burnt out and they were like an ember going out from a fire because they had no other support. They didn't feel heard. They got wheeled out on NAIDOC week and, um, you know, each of the days. And we just went, well, how can we do this differently and we're able, through support of the CEO and the executive of that um, health service, who changed, and I acknowledge that, and there needs to be something embedded in my mind, but that was great because we were able to get a workforce of Aboriginal staff then who felt safe, who had connection to senior management, but up in Arnhem Land um, you have health workers and people that want to come through want to be nurses and doctors and health workers they don't want to leave country because they'll cry for country. They want to feel safe, but they're going into a dominant culture that doesn't speak their language. I'm just... We've got decision-makers here and listening online. Imagine if we had an Aboriginal training or a couple of training facilities for remote, for urban, um, where you could come and be trained in, instead of having to hide culture, hide potential differences that aren't understood, if you could be welcomed into a safe place that you could have training among people that you feel comfortable with in your culture first and then the dominant culture second, do you think if there were places like that, that might be a way to progress and have people feel safe to actually come to these places and train? Um, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable in answering that, to be honest. I think that's up to, you know, we're in the equities phase where it's around co-design. I think that has to come and be driven from community. They need to be telling us that. I think the gone are the days that we, we, we sit back and even myself as a clinician and go, we could, this is a pathway. So I think that's probably as a clinician now, I, you know, five years ago I would have said, yeah, jump into it, do it. Um, but it's a different time and a different space now. Um, and I think unless those things are community-driven, um, embraced and embedded, um, it'll be like probably every other training facility that goes up to these communities that don't get people through their training. I so. think you touched on and think the workforce question before touched on is obviously recruitment and having average on Torres Strait the staff, but what we've kind of glossed over, which is obviously also got to do with your experiences in the health system, is why are we losing our staff? I've Leave it open. Uh, what some of it is, is um, some of their supervisors not understanding some of our cultural needs when people come in as well, not understanding sorry business um, and being able to have cultural leave um, to deal with um, family matters. Because families are at the centre and our community is the centre of our being. It, um, so my thoughts around this is, you know, we, we do our PDPs, but I, I think we could be really looking at this a little bit closer with some of, but making it a safe place and maybe having another Aboriginal person sitting in on some of these things, but to have times to yarn with them about what, you know, if they do come in as, sorry, if they come in in operations, you know, sitting down, having those conversations with them, you know, six months in, is there a place that you've seen while you've been working here that you'd like to go to? How can we support you in further training? Um, are you interested in nursing? Are you interested in radiography? And, you know, 
can we put you in those areas to help build your knowledge and then look at pathways towards doing courses um, and becoming trained in these areas? Um, I think this is really important. I think it's actually really important for all our young people. Um, but yeah, to really, we really need to grab hold and mentor our, our young ones, or not even our young ones, <laughs> um, the others who are you know, trying to support their families as well. I'm, I'm going to mention the big R word, but I think that that needs to be said. KPA1, yeah. the elimination of institutionalised racism discrimination. So I guess, as a, as a, focusing on what we're talking about this morning, as a clinician in our Queensland health system, um, not necessarily directed at your personnel, but even witnessing the racism that you see on the ward, in handover, in our system, is actually quite traumatic for clinicians. Um, the First Nation clinicians and having to fight that system and work out every day how much energy have I got to fight this today is very costly to our First Nations clinicians. Um, for, on a personal experience note, um, I was an intern, I think it was an intern. Um, I had my heart set on doing paediatrics. Um, my year didn't start well as an intern because I was denied leave for sorry leave um, and it's one of my life's biggest regrets is not attending that funeral. Um, and then I was on my emergency department rotation and an uncle came in, he'd had a little bit to drink, he was off country, we were yarning about it, he expressed some suicidal ideation. Um, I come, I obviously go off to do some things, come back, and he had been booted out. I had not, I had not cleared him as the doctor. I was only an intern, but I had not cleared him. But he was deemed to just be another drunk Aboriginal man that needed to go out. I remember running out to the front of the ED, looking for him, and couldn't find him. That evening, I went to my car and I just bawled. That could have been my father could have been my uncle. He was my uncle, but could have been my uncle, uncle. <laughs> um, and it was at that time that I went, I can't, I can't come to work every day like this. And I actually um, applied for GP and actually got onto the GP program. Um, fortunately, I dipped my fingers into ONG while I was doing my GP training and uh, got the ONG bug. <laughs> so I came back to the health system. But those just, and that's, a, that's just two incidences. There was every day things, and I still every day now witness things. And I just, it, it was enough for me to go, I can't, I can't work here. I remember ringing Uncle Noel and going, I'm coming to work for you because I can't, I can't deal with this system. It's too big. It's too mean. Yeah, and I think it goes directly to um, K, the key performance um, action for the equity agenda, which is um, eliminating racism and discrimination. Um, and you'll find a lot of the talk and a lot of the communique is if we don't get number one right, we're not going to get the other four right. Because unless as we as a health system accept one, acknowledge that institutionalised racism is alive and well in Queensland Health, um, two, we accept it, and three, we have enough um, clinical responsibility to understand that we need to eliminate that as a service and a system. So there's a number of steps to eliminating um, institutionalised racism, and, and if there's some really good, and I encourage you all to have a look at some of the work that is around around institutionalised racism within the healthcare, um, and um, encourage you to look at it from a clinical point of view, look at it through that lens, and how does that impact not just your colleagues of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background, but also the patients coming through. It's not just all on us as First Nation people why we have some of the worst health statistics in the world. It is the, it is, we, we share this with the healthcare system, which is Queensland Health primarily here. That's where the majority of us are receiving our care. So I think it's really important we have a really uh, our system and all the people part of our system create and understand that it, it exists. The thing with institutionalised racism, it's so institutionalised, we don't actually know we're doing it. So look for those moments and capture those moments. Be brave enough to call out institutionalised racism or blatant racism. Understand your own unconscious bias that you may have in your decision makers as clinicians that we make every day in the system. 
And as Hayley Grogan said, how do you put First Nations health first? And that's why that first KPA of the equity agenda. I have a question from online. Uh, Lynn Riddell is a nursing director from Mackay. Uh, and she says that staff go through cultural awareness training, but the content has changed little since it started in the 2000s. So what do you think could make a difference in the content of that training? I think doing stuff through a computer gives you nothing. I think you've got to... You look at ways of how things change over time, and if you can have someone who is either Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and you're doing stuff on the floor with that person, just engaging and being with those people, that's, that's a step forward that rather than just going through stuff through a computer. It's, it's just trying to live in the shoes of someone who's either Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Uh, but a computer, uh, it's, that, it doesn't give you anything at all. And um, I don't know what you guys think about that. Opportunities. <laughs> Opportunities to get to look at that. Um, Lynn, I think it's a really good question. And the thing, I've been a um, cultural capabilities facilitator back in the day um, up north and we would have them for eight hours at that time and it was all face to face, obviously, um, many moons ago. And the hardest thing was even after eight days of face to face, I still had clinicians going, but how do I care? How do, I, how do I do better? What I think the equity agenda gives us is five KPIs that we can actually work towards. So um, I'm sure um, working with your local um, cultural capability officers and, and the infrastructures around you is really how do we embrace the equity agenda and those five KPIs and, and actually look at getting a, an education package around that, which is what we've started in Metro North. I think it's moving away from cultural awareness as well. And it's, it's actually... Uh, creating clinicians that can self-reflect on their own bias, I think, is going to make the biggest difference. And if you can are aware of how your communication style and your own bias impacts your care, you are much more open to how other people, uh, what their needs are, regardless of their cultural background. Um, and this whole cultural awareness thing, don't look them in the eye, or like, like that's it's. Yeah, that computer program's terrible. Those um, things, it, cultural safety is obviously probably something yeah. from an opera. They're looking at a 2020 to 2025 strategy for all clinicians that are registered through APRA um, will be under the um, cultural safety. So I encourage you all to go and look for that document from APRA around National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural safety strategy. I think that's a really safe and, and better way to look at um, education within the system. Um, I moved to hey. <laughs> I moved to Australia. I've got English accent 12 years ago, and I remember being in a meeting trying to raise a patient safety issue, and being told I was a whinging pom. <laughs> it was institutional racism, and it was the first time I had experienced racism as a privileged white person. Um, I recently went on some training, and the one thing that really made me hit home. Uh, was a statement somebody said was to the privileged equity and equality can feel like oppression and it was a really hard-hitting statement because I kind of went yeah when we're privileged we have to give something up to allow those who don't have enough to actually flourish I just wanted to make that point Um, Kisha Spirit is a registered nurse from the Health Contact Centre. She says, thank you for speaking today. I am an Aboriginal registered nurse. We face challenges every day to fight for inclusion for staff and consumers and culture. Any suggestions to improve understanding of hierarchy to include First Nations staff and consumers? become the hierarchy. <laughs> Very simple. And that's what I was saying. Stop putting glass ceilings on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. If we don't become part of the decision-making prowess across the health system, uh, we're never make, going to make an impact. Um, I want a succession plan to the executive director of TPCH and then work my way up. I don't want to be glass ceiling by what we do. Because that's when true change will actually happen. When Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are sitting there, not only as equals, but at the decision-makers, not as, as advisors consultants 
um, which I'm asked to do quite regularly, which is probably pulling the hardest weight of that um, engagement for me, but it's actually about becoming decision makers and making got you guys going back and going, what are, the, what are the pathways for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our health services? How do, we, how do I succession plan them to your position sitting here? What tools can we help them with along the way to be able to facilitate um, and end up in those positions? Because we don't know it all and we're working in a system that has whiteness to it. It's that westernised health system. So we don't know it all. We come from a different system. We've had to find our way, but we need your help. We need allies along the way. Oh, thanks. Um, I have a question. Um, I work in, as a psychiatrist in both, I've worked in the city and in rural areas, and I'm just wondering, while the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health force is increasing, is there a role, or does the panel think there's a role for elders um, to bring the spiritual component of healing to the urgent presentations, particularly perhaps around suicidality, and can you know that accessibility be brought to the health service at times like weekends and after hours? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, APY lands and um, Central Australia have paid state health staff that are Nunkery traditional healers that attend. Um, to provide alongside um, Western medicine traditional healing. Um, Same so with Adelaide Hospital And as Adelaide well. as well, because I travel down to there as well, yeah. So it's already being done in Australia, so yes. <laughs> and, and also in Western Australia, they have um, traditional healers who go out who actually travel around to different Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health services um, and deliver care out there. And they deliver it also to non-Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health, I mean, people. Hi, Alicia Satin um, from Clinical Excellence Queensland. Um, I just wanted to go back to your, uh, your personal story. I mean, that, that, that touched me quite deeply. And I'm just thinking, that was your experience as a as an intern, sort of feeling this burden of the system and wanting to run away. Um, you know, fast forward to where you're at now. You know, senior clinician, chair of the first, you know, inaugural chair of the First Nations Clinical Network. Are you experiencing similar things on a different level at the level of the system? And would you feel comfortable sharing that? And, and also in, in that context, what's your vision for where we might head? And what might how might allies help in that process? So I hate to say the word, but I guess the resilience builds, and, and it's not up to us to build resilience. But I think as as you become more senior clin as a clinician as well, you uh, feel more comfortable calling things out. And obviously, uh, I'm co-chair of the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Clinical Network, so I, I, this is an area that I actively seek a voice in. Um, and but yeah so i guess i still i still struggle on a day to day basis um i will i, I do a lot of mindfulness <laughs> um and some mornings in my car i will decide that today is not the day that i have the energy for this um cuz even uh, as a clinician going to a handover and hearing that there is an aboriginal mother and the next question is is child safety involved that that happens you think about it it happens every day i will witness subtle Subtle changes, um, women wanting to go home but in a perfectly reasonable state being, signed, being told to sign discharge against medical advice form. If that was a white woman living in New Farm, would you be making her do that? I, I can countless, countless things throughout my day. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've, I've built resilience, but I guess I am also now empowered by the fact that I'm, I'm working at a higher level to try and overcome that. And so I guess the little things no longer get you down. Um, I'm, yeah, feel more like I can call it out now and, and do and do say things like, if that was a white woman in New Farm, would you be doing that? Um, so, but, uh, but some days I don't have the energy for that and it's just a matter of just doing my job um, and getting by. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I think actually uh, working in the Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Clinical Network and with CEQ has really actually given me a little bit more of a... Um, a boost in my morale to know that there is this health equity agenda, that the, there's right people in the right seats and there's this motivation for change and to improve and to look at systems in a new way um, is makes the day-to-day work easier because we know that we're working towards it and we've got um, people like this mob coming through doing all their great things. Um, and I've forgotten your second part. Sorry, I have a three-month-old, so my brain is like... <laughs> No, no, you covered it. It was really about your vision for, um, you know, the um, taking the agenda forward in, in the role of, of the inaugural chair and how can allies like all of us um, contribute to that? So I guess my vision, which might be to do with that whole wand question, is that big picture vision is actually deconstructing our healthcare system, taking away from this patriarchal centred tertiary centres where you must come to us and pay $50 for parking and wait an hour or two hours to see your doctor. We need to take our care to the community, whether you're black or white. Um, and we need to move away from this uh, doctors and that the hospital is in the centre. Um, so that would be my vision, is that we actually deconstruct, we're hub and spoke, we're in the communities, we have all these outpatients and we're going out to them um, and uh, using technology as part of that. Um, I'm sure the voice team have probably presented over the last two days, I was, wasn't here yesterday. Um, but like models like that where we can actually just be in the community, um, where we... <laughs> politics aside, where we stop thinking about it just in a three-yearly rotation of what we can get done. We start thinking about the long term. Um, we stop thinking about what our priorities are in regards to activity-based funding and surgeries being the big thing that gets all the money. Um, we think about our lowest of our low, our, our mob in prisons. What's anyone doing for them? Nothing. So I think that we need to just completely overhaul the system. Hospitals should be in prisons. That's. <laughs> and at times it don't, they don't seem that different either. <laughs> so, and our people are in constant fight and flight. Yeah. Um, and I guess from what I, I, what I would uh, like to see of, of, my, of allies is educating themselves, not always going to the black person asking them what they should do, um, but so seeking out self-education. I'd like to see education like our degrees and our training to be core. Um, I think it's too late once they're in our health system to undo the damage that the degrees have done. I think we need to go right back to the beginning and look at how and embed that the um, this knowledge of how our system is currently a very Western patriarchal system and how we need to go back and undo it all. I think once we've got clinicians, a computer program is not going to change their views and not going to change the system. I think also the point is where not just the black person calling out racism, that everyone else that's in that group calls it out themselves yeah. and have the confidence and the courage to think, hey, that's not right. Um, that's That's a big one. And then also, if someone discloses to you that they feel that they've had racism against them, don't go, oh, no, that couldn't possibly happen. Not here. Support them, you know, and agree um, with them. You know, acknowledge that this has happened. So, because I've had that happen too many times when I reported, you know, I can't believe that just happened. And they go, oh, that couldn't have possibly happened. No. I guess that question kind of leads on, let's end on giving everyone some tips. Any other tips for being an effective ally for asking our clinicians that are here today? Well, one, sorry, reconciliation week's coming. Um, that's not up to us um, to do. That's actually up to everybody else to actually make an effort. So it'd be really nice to hear that... Um, when you all go back into um, your own facilities that you actually seek out the reconciliation committees that are going on and take part, help organise a stall and take part in the day. Um, probably just to add on to Alicia around um, how do you as allies educate yourself, that doesn't necessarily include um, things like that cultural aspect of educating yourself. You've got a lot of cultural immersion activities that you can do on the weekend. Um, learn how to be a good ally at work. Learn how to be a good ally in your decision making on how you care 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients. We're not here as your cultural protocols or your cultural confidant um, for you to immerse you in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. That's, that's on you and that's something you can do with your families and, and your, your structures around you. But today as a clinician, educate yourself on what that is. Get to know the five KPIs of the um, health equity and how you can um, implement those in your decision making and the frameworks around what you decide how to care for our First Nations people in your care. To me, I'm all about simplicity. I think it's when you have your patient, talk to them and give a little bit about yourself. Tell them where you're from. Ask and ask them where you're from. Where's your mob from? And just build up those just those little key things because that's where that connection starts straight away. And if you can build upon that, then that's that's a starting point. And Alicia, as the um, chair, I might give you the final word for today in terms of a message that you'd like the audience to go away with. I think we've had some good discussions here today. Thank you for your questions and for being brave to ask. Um, and thank you to sharing, um, as, as was said, that not everyone else here has asked to share their own personal stories. Um, so thank you for, for sharing. Um, I guess a, a summary moving forward is that we do have, we've obviously got some motivated people in the crowd and we do have allies at work. Um, we obviously have challenges as well, but we've got allies at work. And I think, as, as Kirsty kept saying, is that we've got the health equity agenda and, and that, that black business is not our business. It is everyone's business. Um, and, and we'd really encourage you all to have a look at that documentation. Um, and, and as Kirsty, I think Kirsty already done a good summary, but um, <laughs> is, is to really open your eyes around how can I apply a health equity lens to everything that I do does this policy, this clinical guideline that I'm producing, what is the health equity lens, what is the health equity issues that will come up as I write this? Um, I think that's, that's probably a good way to start is just think, think about health equity. Um, and that will not just benefit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it'll benefit all your patients. And I used to say this all the time, if you can do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health well, if you can treat your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients um, on, on the appropriate level and, and have good outcomes, then you will be a better clinician and your other patients and you'll start to be attuned to other culturally and linguistic, linguistically diverse populations that you can also tweak how you're doing or communicating and be better for them as well. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.